Well, guys, welcome today to uh, a new study. Uh, we're jumping into a new school year and uh, not yet feeling quite like fall, maybe a little bit, uh, but things are changing and uh, so is our uh, direction as, and our messages too. And we are in the Old Testament today, uh, going back uh, into the Old. And some people say, well, you know, uh, we don't read the Old Testament a lot, uh, but the Old Testament is uh, a treasure. It really is. And we need to understand how it was given, but understand it also has a great value. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, it says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So some things the Old Testament does, the stories, and we might read them as a story and say, well, that's really interesting. You know, it's kind of a, a drama or a love story, whatever it may be. Um, but this says we're, there's some things we can learn. Endurance, we can learn about endurance. We learn a lot about how to endure hard times. We also can learn about encouragement. We can be encouraged that God has a plan. And then also about hope, uh, the Apostle Paul says. So three things we can take from this. And so as we go back into the Old Testament uh, in this uh, next study, I pray that you will not only just get the story. I mean, we could talk about the story. I could tell you the story of Ruth in, in 10 minutes or less. However, there's so much backstory. There's so much truth, so many principles that we're going to pull out of this that I'm really excited about this study. Some call this the Cinderella story of the Old Testament, from rags to riches. Uh, we're calling it the big little love story because it is a small story, small in scope. Uh, it's only four chapters in the Bible and small in perspective. If you look at it to, to what, you know, where, where it happened and the people involved, just a small uh, insignificant, seemingly insignificant people, people, a group of people, but it's a part of the big story, the God's big love story, and we're going to tie that in and how it even connects to everything uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. We're going to talk about things like uh, sickness and death and hopelessness and poverty and desperation and sorrow, which are the real things of life, right? But then we're also going to talk about faith, hope, and love and the great things as well. So we're going to turn the corner on that. Uh, but we have to deal with reality of life as we go. Now, maybe you've read the book of Ruth before. It's a, a kind of a short read that maybe you never thought about, some things that maybe need to be reinforced in your life like they do in mine. And I hope that this will change your life, change the way you look at the Bible, look at the Old Testament, and also change your view of God. And you're going to see God in a fresh perspective and His providence and His, His love and care and grace. And you're also going to see Jesus in a brand new way as well, I believe, in this study. So that's a big promise, so we might as well get started. So let's just go directly to the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 1. We read some of the verses in the video, but we're going to go back and, and read through them again uh, in, in our, our message time. Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So we get some idea about what's happening in this kind of introductory to the story. That the story is set in the period of Israel's history, which was called the Judges. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know there's a book of the Bible called Judges. And basically what that book is it does is chronicle a period of time uh, and how the country was ruled by by local judges. And here's how it describes what that period of time was like. If you can imagine this, Judges chapter 21, this is the last book, verse of the book of Judges, and the verse, strangely enough, right before the book of Ruth. Here's what it says. 
It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Can you imagine what a culture would look like if there were no rules? If everyone did exactly what they wanted? You imagine what driving alone would look like if everyone did exactly what they wanted. There was no clear leader at the time. It was a lawless time in the country of Israel. This was before kings came into being, before Saul and David and Solomon, the great kings of of Israel. Uh, This was after uh, Moses and Abraham was kind of in that period where God had kind of pulled back and said, okay, you guys decide how you're going to live, who you're going to choose to obey. And uh, there was no central leader. There were, however, some regional leaders. Every now and then, God would raise up a person, and they would kind of lead from their scope of influence, family or community or whatever, but it was kind of spotty leadership. People like Gideon, who we mentioned last week, that God called to defeat the Midianites, and people like Samson. I'm sure you know his story, this strong man that fought against the Philistines. And there was also a judge named Deborah. There were several judges during that time. And if you want to read some of the most action-packed and violent, troubling stories in the Bible, read the book of Judges. I'm telling you, it would be an interesting study for you because there's so much in there, and you're going to look at it and go, my goodness, people really did that. Uh, it was a lawless time when people basically ignored God, and God kind of left them to themselves. And that's the period in which this time was set, the time of Ruth. Now, it also tells in the first few verses that a famine was going on, and basically that means that it hadn't rained for a while, and there was a drought, so there was no food that was to be available. It was hard times. God oftentimes would use something like a famine to withhold blessings, or rain in this case, from his people to try to, to uh, turn them back to him. It was a way of punishing the rebellious people. And you also notice the family in the story was from a small town that we hear a lot about around December called Bethlehem, Right? Is that's kind of interesting that Bethlehem was introduced here. Uh, you probably recognize that name. It was a tiny town where Jesus was born uh, many, many years later. And here's the neat thing is the story of Ruth actually tells us why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's kind of cool. We're going to discover what, that, what, what that's all about. And so it was a hard time in Bethlehem. I'll also note that Bethlehem was normally called kind of the breadbasket of, of Israel. It was a very fertile place. But even in this fertile place, there was no food, and times were really tough. But keep in mind that God had his control or his hand over this. God was doing something. God had a plan that he's about to put into place because God always has a plan. And we're going to discover that when we try to avoid God's plan and we try to fix our problem on our own, we always get in deeper trouble, deeper trouble. God's plan was to use this famine to turn his people kind of at at the time of the judges to turn his rebellious people back to him. But this one family, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons decide, you know what? We have a better plan. We're not going to submit to God's authority. We're going to go, we're going to fix it because we're going to leave our land. And so they moved to a place called Moab. Now, Moab is not that far away from Bethlehem, probably 30, 50 miles, something like that. It was quite a distance in that day, but it wasn't on the other side of the world either. It was outside Judah, which was God's chosen land, and it was a very pagan place. Let me tell you where it came from, the founder. The founder of Moab was a man named Lot. And you probably recognize Lot because he was the nephew of Abraham, and and he came along with Abraham up to the promised land when God led him there and gave the land to them. And Abraham and Lot 
kind of gathered. They both had uh, sheep and, and flocks, and there wasn't enough room for both of them. So Abraham gave Lot the, best, the first choice of, uh, of what land he wanted, and he chose the best land, and Abraham kind of got stuck with the rest of it. Now, you also might remember that on the land that Lot chose, there were two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And those cities were known for two things. Number one was not being hospitable, but primarily, you probably know, they were known for the sin of homosexuality and sexual immorality of all sorts. And you probably also know the story that God decided to destroy those two cities, and he did so with fire and brimstone. However, before that, he let Lot and his family leave. So Lot, his wife, and two daughters left the, the cities, and they began to go up into the mountains. And you probably know the story that his wife looked back at the city, regretting her leaving it, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. So suddenly there's no one left but Lot and his two daughters, and they go live in a cave, and the daughters decide, you know what, we don't have any children, and so they get their father Lot drunk, and they have sex with him. He impregnates both of them. One of their children was named Moab. Now that is where the country of Moab came from, so you can imagine kind of what their uh, culture was all about. It was a wicked place, especially with the sexual sins. It was not a good place to move your family, your wife, and your two boys. But Elimelech says, we're out of Judah. We don't like God's plan. Let's choose our own plan. And so he decided to move them there where God had specifically said, do not go to live in Moab. Do not marry the Moabites. It is a, uh, a thing that is detestable to God. But they moved away from their faith community, away from the land that God had given them to possess, away from the punishment that God was trying to use to correct them. They had no thought about faith. They had no thought about the future and the impact of their decision on the family as well. Elimelech only thought seemingly about making a living, only about getting ahead, surviving maybe, no thought about how this would impact his generations down the line. You know, what I discovered from that is that, men, we have a powerful impact on the faith of our family. The decisions that we make that seemingly might not be that great can have huge repercussions and will ripple down throughout generations. Statistically, uh, uh, men, if, if our wives go to church and, and they become a Christian, just our wives do, many times men and the children do not follow. Sometimes children do, but that's a struggle. But if men come and commit their life to the Lord, almost always the whole family shows up. The whole family comes to support because of our men's, our, our influence, and our leadership. So guys, we are called by God to step up and lead our families, not just provide for them physically, but provide for them spiritually as well. And 99% of the time, where we lead our families will be the direction that they follow and determine the future of our family, our children and their children, both here on the earth and also into eternity. So I don't think we can minimize uh, I don't think we can, can say too strongly the power of a man's influence on his family. And guys, whenever we put ourselves in a place away from God, we get ourselves in trouble, and it, and it ripples down as well. And especially whenever we put ourselves in a place away from God and in contact with sexual sin, we're in great danger. And I want to single this out because the city of the country of Moab was just that type of place. Elimelech didn't realize the impact it would have upon his family when he moved there to this sexually immoral city because the Bible says that sexual sin has a greater impact on us than any other sin in our lives. So, man, whenever you start looking at porn, 
You start visiting strip clubs or you become really casual in your conversation about sex or when you uh, begin a flirtation or an affair, you are playing with fire and it will consume you and your family. You don't want to hurt your kids, but I'm telling you, this is the type of sin that is so destructive. And Elimelech chose that type of environment to move his family into, obviously did not consult with God about this decision, and they just went into this land, and they began to live there, and they lived there for 10 years. Now, two of his sons, or the two sons he had, they grew up in this pagan land, so it became very normal for them, a new normal in their lives away from God. Their names were Malon and Kilion, and uh, you know, last week we said that Jabez, his mother named him, uh, he brings pain. Uh, in, in childbirth. Well, these guys, I'm not sure what they were thinking that day about naming their kids because these boys' names actually meant sick and dying. Wow. You know, they needed a, one of those books about baby names, right? You know, <laughs> to name your kid. I don't know where they were unhealthy or what, but they named them sick and dying. And uh, so they, they grow up in this culture. They marry Moabite women, which God told them not to do. Elimelech either gave them no direction or obviously he didn't care. You know, he was an absent, passive father of some sort. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, they married, and God had said, okay, one of the strictest commands is that believers should not marry unbelievers. God told his people of Israel, you do not marry the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Midianites or Philistines. Do not marry the un ungodly people. And, you know, I just want to take that a moment because here's something we can learn from this whole story is, is that this command is pretty valid today pretty valid today. And you know, when, when we start dating, it's such a crucial time. We got to teach our kids that, that, that our kids should not date someone unless they want to marry, they, that they would not marry. Because we fall in love, and then we get, we're not very objective when we're in love, right? And so whether you're a young person or adult, you should not date someone that you would not consider to marry, because you can fall in love with them. And now let me just say, many times as well, people are unequally matched when it comes to, to marriage itself. And I wanted to just emphasize this, that a, a believer is not better than an unbeliever. I, I don't want to suggest that. But, but God makes this command, and in practicality, it makes sense because in order to spare both the believer and an unbeliever a lot of pain, it's wise not to marry an unbeliever. Now, why do I say that? Well, because it's tough for an unbeliever to be married to a Christian, a believer. It, it really is, I know. And I think if you were to ask someone who's married to a Christian, you know, they're not, they would say there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of conflict about church because they want to go to church. And you know, the, the unbeliever does, it doesn't make a lot of sense to them to go to church. Uh, you know, they want to pray together because but that doesn't feel natural to someone who doesn't know Christ. And, you know, when they're raising their kids, there's certain things that they expect and that doesn't make sense. You might want to, a believer may want to give money to the church and that, that can be a real issue of conflict, can it? There's a lot of reasons why God says, that, that's not a good idea, don't do that. A lot of flight, a lot of conflict, and that's why God says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament, God just says, do not be yoked together. Marriage is about as yoked as you can get, in my opinion. I mean, there's business deals, and there's friendships, and a lot of different things we can get into, but marriage is about as yoked as, as I can think of. And the Bible, you know, just says, this is wise, this is smart, this is, there's going to be problems if you don't follow this command. Now, I want to say also immediately that the Bible is clear that if you are currently married to someone who is not a Christian, 
do not seek to get away from that. Do not use that as an excuse to divorce at all. You must do your best to show them who Jesus is, to love them with the love of Christ, hopefully to win them to the Lord, but make sure that you do all of this with a pure heart. Now, having said that, I will go back and say, I think that both people in a marriage that unequally, uh, a believer and unbeliever, would agree that it's oftentimes difficult, and it makes sense practically. That's why God would say it. At any rate, Elimelech, he failed in leading his family, and what he did is he started a generational slide away from God. And soon his entire family was out of church, if you will, and they left God behind. You know, I see that a lot, and I'm going to meddle a little bit here. Forgive me, I'll take it from God's Word, but I see that a lot sometimes. I see that families make decisions that pull them away from God, that pull them out of church. And, and my observation, if you're not in, connected in church on a regular basis, your relationship with God is going to be difficult. Amen. It's going to be strained. It's going to be hard. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying it's going to be inconsistent, and it's going to suffer because of that. But I will say, I see a family make a decision like, hey, we're going to buy a boat. I told you I was going to meddle. We're going to buy an RV. You know, we're going to join a uh, select sports team that's going to pull us out of church. And you know, at the time, it seemed like a great idea. It seemed like harmless. We can balance it all. But what eventually happens is that there's a, it becomes an inconsistent commitment to God. And soon, other commitments become greater. And soon, it becomes the fact that they slide away from God. And it's not just one or two. It's the whole family follows and in most cases, and I've got 35 years of experience to kind of document, in most cases, it just doesn't come back again. Sometimes it does, but, but in many cases, it does not come back. And you, and you ask, well, who's to blame in this? I think, men, it's us. It's us. We're to blame. Amen. We're to blame the decisions we make about our family are important. We have to decide, what are we trying to leave? What are we trying to put into our kids? You see, we need to not just be looking for a good time in life. Nothing wrong with having a good time. We need to be looking for a good legacy, a good legacy. And let me ask you, what is the legacy that you're going to leave for your family, for your children, your grandchildren going up? That There are a few things that are more important than the legacy that we'll, we'll leave for those to follow. And I want to tell you, in this process, the choice of a mate is very important. Very important. So men, if you're looking for someone, if you're single looking for a, a good a mate, look for a good woman who loves the Lord and worships God and puts him first. And, and women, if you're looking, looking for a good, look for a good man who loves the Lord and worships the Lord. Make that a priority in your search above everything else. We'll talk more about that as we get, get down the road here in this study. But, but our culture uh, doesn't value that. The church doesn't value that, and, and it's suffering because of that, and people suffer. Now, I've also noticed, as you probably have, that in our culture, more and more people are waiting longer to get married at all. And, and that might not be a bad idea, because I know sometimes people get married too soon, and they don't think about that. But while you're waiting, make sure and remain pure. Use your time wisely, but be pure in the process, remembering that decisions that we make, even before we're married, will impact us and our families down the road. So there's a lot to learn about this situation right here and from these two people. And Malon and Kilion, they grew up in a culture away from God because their dad had made this decision that pulled them out of fellowship and out of community uh, with the church, uh, with the, 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 their godly community. And when they got ready to marry, guess what? 
they didn't go back home and find godly women. They went and married the Moabites that were around them, two Moabite women. Now, I'm not going to say that they were horrible women either. Let me just back up because we're going to see later that one of them especially was an awesome woman. But you understand that in marrying them, they were getting deeper and deeper in the pagan culture. Because how many of us know that you don't just marry the person, you marry the family, right? Maybe you discovered that, you know, in a harsh way that, hey, I just thought I was getting a wife or a husband. I didn't know I was going to get an entire community, you know, and, and their issues. So um, I'll just leave that, let that lay, and you can think about it. But the reality is, is you, you marry into that, their culture as well. And in this case, they were in the deep in the pagan culture at that point. You know, statistics tell us that the very best chance of happiness and, and joyful marriage, I mean a full marriage, is when, you, is when two Christians marry and committed to a local church, and they have their church community. So that's what Elimelech robbed his sons of, and it's not going to turn out very well. All right, let's move on. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. So here is the unexpected. The story, I told you it takes some twists and some negative things. They got sick. We don't know how long they lingered, but not only did the husband die, but all the, the, the boys died too. The sick and dying boys eventually died. And suddenly there's disaster in, in the home, and there's, there's no money because they went there to survive financially, and suddenly the breadwinners are dead, and they're in a crisis mode. What, what are they going to do here? There's no church home. There's no church community. There's no spiritual support. There's no blood family around. There's no source of income. There's no plan for the women's future. You know, I think we can learn something else practical here. Guys, stuff like this happens every day, doesn't it? Men, breadwinners, die in their family and leave their spouses with little or nothing. And so, guys, we need to make sure that we make a plan for that, that we have, you know, insurance, that we have investments, or we have some plan, something to take care of our family. And that's important. And I want to tell you, I believe that the church community has a hand in that. I've seen that happen when, when people pass that the church community comes in to help, not because the person didn't plan necessarily, but just to be there to surround them and support them. So that's why the church is important. That's why planning is important as well. So when all this happens, Naomi is very unsure. What is she going to do? She starts in a panic. She begins to worry until she hears news from back home and she discovers that the famine's been lifted. So let's pick it up in the Bible. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she, let, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. And when her two daughters-in-law, excuse me, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you would find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too older to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. 
Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her family and her, God, her people and her gods. Go back with her. So there's good news and then there's difficult decisions, right? Things are better back in Judah. God had forgiven his people. God had come to their, to their aid. He had relieved the famine. There was food once more. And so Naomi, the solution looks right to her. Not having any real ties to Moab anyway, decides to go back home. She has extended family there. And her daughter-in-laws, uh, Orpah and Ruth, have left their families to join her. They're kind of living in community, the three of them. And they initially decide to go with them, and they, or with her, and they start out on the road back to Bethlehem. But on the way, it occurs to Naomi that, wait a minute here, this may not be a good idea. There's no life for my daughter-in-laws in Bethlehem. Why? Because they were foreigners. They, they were connected to her, but they had no connection anywhere else. And in those days, foreigners were not assimilated well in, in, in Judah, and uh, they, they were young, and it only made sense they could go back and marry again. But there wasn't a future for them in Bethlehem. And so she tried to convince them to go back, go back to your family and your home. She said, I'm not going to have any more sons to marry. Even if I got pregnant today, are you going to wait 20 years or whatever for these boys to grow up? Uh, go back to your family. And one of them, Orpah, we don't know a lot about her. This is all we know. She was reasonable. She went back to her home and her gods. But the other one, Ruth, refused to go back. And here's the, what it picked up and says, verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates me from you. You ever heard that before? In a wedding, probably, right? In a wedding, it's kind of a makes beautiful thing to say for a, a bride to say to her husband, but it really wasn't spoken by a woman to a man. It was spoken by Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi, saying, I'm going with you. I'm going to commit my life to be with you and to care for you. And, uh, and, and I think also, in a way, this was Ruth's conversion, because she talks about your God will be my God. It wasn't just, I'm going to go home with you and live with you, uh, and we'll spend life together. This was her saying, I want your God to be my God. And so she, in this uh, time, converted to believing in the true God. And I'm sure she had heard Naomi, even though Naomi's got some issues with God. We'll talk about those. Uh, she, uh, she said, uh, I want your God to be my God. And she left her past behind and began a new life. Now, Ruth could never know it. We know it because we read the book, right? But Ruth could never know that God was going to make the second part of her life so much better than the first part of her life. But she had to leave a godless place and a godless land in order for that to happen. Now, what's cool about that is because this is a picture of repentance, a picture of repentance. We may think our life is good, but God has a much better place to take us to if we're willing to turn our back on that place and that life. And that way of living. And that's called repentance, leaving a life of sin and turning to the life that God's called us to. And maybe there's some of you here today who need to make a similar decision in your own life. You need to make a change from where you are and where you have been to move literally from darkness into light, to move, uh, move from living a life of sin to a life of forgiveness and holiness, maybe to, to move from addiction to recovery, from living for yourself and, and into living for Jesus. And that's a hard choice to make. Not everybody's going to do it. You know, Orpah was on the line. She he started back, and she really wanted to do this. But when push came to shove, she turned around, and she went back to her old life and to her, own God, her old gods. She wasn't strong enough to make the decision. 
And so I'll ask you today, what do you need to move away from? Who do you need to walk away from? What do you need to leave behind so that then you can embrace a new life, the life that God's called you to? You have to make that decision. All of us have to do it individually. Because only when we do that, and only through Jesus, can we discover that the old becomes new, that the past can be forgiven and forgotten by God. And that's what Ruth does. So Ruth is all in, and so together the two of them head to Bethlehem. And here's, uh, here's what it says. We wrap up the chapter. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she, stay, she stopped urging her. And so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, they left Moab, but they got to Bethlehem. And to be honest with you, the beginning wasn't all that promising because they get there and Naomi is bitter at God. You ever been bitter at God? You ever kind of wonder what God is doing, why God let these things happen to you? That's where Naomi is. She's blaming God for her misfortune. She takes no responsibility for the decisions that she went along with to leave the hand and the protection of God. And she said, I went away full, but God brought me back bitter and empty. The Lord's afflicted me and brought misfortune upon me. I've felt like that before, haven't you? She fell out of fellowship with God out of fellowship with the community, with family, with friends. She was broken emotionally, poverty-stricken. You know, it's kind of interesting, the name Naomi means sweet and pleasant, but the name Mara means bitter, bitterness. And she said, don't call me sweet and pleasant. I used to be that person when I had a husband and two sons, but now I'm just full of bitterness. And you know, there was a lot to be concerned about. They had no home, they had no money, no food, no prospects going on. She's brought a daughter-in-law, Ruth, into a closed community, a foreigner. She's going to be viewed suspiciously by people. But if you read the rest of the story, you know it's amazing because we're going to see the amazing grace of God that's going to pour out upon Naomi, and she's going to be blessed. So just tip your, my, our hands. She's going to find joy again, and, uh, and God's going to do some incredible provision and healing in their lives. And Bethlehem is going to be a place where life will be restored to them and where the whole world would one day look to for hope, where wise men would come from afar to see the event that happened in Bethlehem. It would be a safe place for her and for her daughter-in-law. And guys, this is what we want our church to be. We want to be a church community, a safe place where life is restored a place where people find hope and healing and, and they find a, a, the joy of God. Because Naomi is like a lot of us. Maybe she's been through a lot and she thought she would never find joy again, that her life was basically over. But God's going to give her new life like she had never could have imagined. And God's going to show up in a way that just blows her away and changes her future and it's going to be awesome for her. It's a lot of great news. At this point, everything looks good going forward, all right? We talked about the bad today. Going forward, it's all going to be some incredible, just one after the other, great things that happen in her life and in Ruth's life. And I want to tell you, I believe our lives in Christ can be the same. Not that we're going to be exempt from problems, but to understand that God has 
a plan for our lives. There will be hard times, but God brings hope, God brings healing, God brings restoration, and that's the story, not only of this love story we're going to look at, but God's big love story, God's big love story of restoring us to Him through Jesus Christ. So we'll look forward to to talking about that as we go on. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. God, as we look back, as we kind of break down the story of uh, uh, in the Bible, one that, that we may have read or heard of, God, we realize that uh, these people are living real life like we do, and they're dealing with the same issues. Uh, they're dealing with questioning you and, and uh, with, with money issues and health issues and death and, and sickness and, uh, and brokenness and conflict and relationships. And, and God, we, we know those things well. God, we pray that you would guide us as we study. And Lord, remembering that we can learn from the words that were written long ago about endurance and about hope, about healing and encouragement. And Father, help us to cling to those things and to trust your plan. And God, Father, help us to understand that to experience that new plan, we have to leave our past, uh, leave the life that we've, we've lived and, and followed and, and maybe even chosen. Uh, that God, we have to turn our backs on that and turn to you and follow you. And that's where new life begins. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, who is the star of this story as we move into it. We pray in his name. Amen.